The prophet Isaiah may well be the most misunderstood of the greater prophets of the Old Testament. We're going to give you the tools that you need to understand and even enjoy this wonderful Old Testament book. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Welcome back to Gospel Doctrine. This is episode number 36, The Glory of Zion Will Be a Defense. Today we'll be covering Isaiah chapters 1 through 6. And I should mention that uh, earlier this week I released a special episode called The Six Antecedents of Isaiah. And it's intended as sort of a broad strategy for a method of understanding what Isaiah might have been getting at. And I encourage you, if you haven't listened to that episode yet, I encourage you to listen to that. If you don't have time, uh, I'll give you a brief overview. But at some point, uh, I, I think you'd be well served to listen to that. And then we'll go into one of the feed, one of the pieces of feedback that I had from those who attended that live event was they wish that I'd, um, I'd given more examples on how to apply the six antecedents in specific passages in Isaiah. Well, that's what we'll be doing over the next five weeks. We've got several more lessons on Isaiah to get through. So there'll be a lot of time to practice those six antecedents as long as you have a a background in what they are. As always, if you'd like to ask questions about lessons coming up or about lessons that, uh, about this lesson or lessons in the past, please email the show gt at gospeltoctrine.com or, uh, send us a private message on Facebook. I'd be happy to respond to those as part of the program. So what are the six antecedents of Isaiah? Briefly, the, the difficulty, the first, in order to understand, the first thing we need to know is why is Isaiah so difficult to understand? And obviously he's writing from a different culture, a different time, in a different language, all of which are foreign to us. Um, but secondly, Isaiah used what is called prophetic layering, to add multiple meanings to even the same passage. And so uh, it's a book of poetry. It's a book of poetry written in another language. That language, Hebrew, doesn't have the same kind of tenses, the same grammar that English has. So a lot of times Isaiah will be speaking about something that is in the past, even for him, but he'll be using, the, the translators have rendered it in the future tense in English and vice versa. That's why we can't uh, we can't always trust the tense that you the grammatical tense that you see in the book of Isaiah and in other in other parts of the Old Testament. Um, but Isaiah specifically, because he speaks prophetically so much of the time, he's often talking about the future, and we don't know exactly. Even the best of scholars don't always know when those prophecies end, and then Isaiah is back to talking about his own day, and. So part of the part of the difficulty in this is a purely linguistic one. And that's compounded by the fact that we're reading this in the King James Version, which is 400 years old. Now, the King James Version is amazing. Uh, it has so many things about it that have never been duplicated in any other version. For example, uh, we'll talk a little bit about the aspects of Hebrew poetry in this episode. And those aspects are preserved in the King James Version probably better than anywhere else. 
in addition, for LDS listeners, the King James Version is the version that Joseph Smith had, and therefore it's the one that the Lord chose to have him duplicate in the Book of Mormon. So when Nephi makes extensive quoting of the Book of Isaiah in his writings, Joseph Smith was prompted to render those in the language of the King James Version, and that's why it's important for us. However, there are uh, there are plenty of other versions. One that I like for this particular set of lessons is, is a website called IsaiahExplained.com, and this is... Uh, of an LDS, a member of the LDS Church who was converted from uh, Hebraic yeshiva, a rabbinical school in Israel, and became, um, he studied under Hugh Nibley and became a a translator and scholar, Isaiah scholar, and and he's a prominent LDS scholar. So that is his own translation, and uh, you can you can read these chapters. One of the things I like about IsaiahExplained.com is that you can see each chapter. You can see where it goes into prose and then where it goes into poetry. Uh, so that gives me a that gives me an opportunity to talk a little bit about Hebrew poetry. Now, a lot, maybe as much as one third of the Old Testament is written in poetry, and that presents a difficulty, number one, because Hebrew poetry is not like English poetry. When we think poetry, we think of rhyme and meter. And Hebrew poetry made use of neither of those. We've talked about some of the aspects of it, but it was marked, and and the lines, it is separated, uh, Hebrew poetry is separated into lines, and those lines are of roughly the same length. So it it is rhythmical, but it doesn't have a, a... a meter where each line has the exact number of syllables and the exact sequence of emphasis the way that uh, English poetry does at its most rigid, right? The the sonnet form, for example, iambic pentameter, where you can know exactly how many syllables are going to be on each line and when they're each going to be stressed. That doesn't exist in Hebrew the way it does for us, but there are a lot of aspects of Hebrew, Hebrew poetry that are clearly recognizable. So I'll just go through them really quickly. And this is coming from an Enzyme article uh, from June of 1990 issue, Understanding Old, Te- Old Testament Poetry by Kevin Barney. So I encourage you to read that whole article. It's, it's very interesting. But the number one characteristic that we see over and over again is repetition. So parallelism, we've talked a lot about it, but repetition could be, just be the same word. And it could even take the form of what's called the cognate accusative, meaning, um, as as Lehi put it, I dreamed a dream. So this is a poetic or a literary device in Hebrew where something is repeated in, a, in order to give it sort of a poetic sense or a poetic meaning. Um, and that, that repetition, if it was repeated enough or in the right way, it was the way that they expressed what we what we do what we call the superlative so if we wanted to say glory to god in the highest then we use est but the way that a a hebrew speaker would do it is by saying glory 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 to god or uh, glory to god glory to god by repeating those words or by repeating them and then adding to them which we'll discuss in a minute then that's that's the way that they would express the idea glory to God in the highest. Uh, 
so Hebrew poetry, while it didn't have rhyme, it did have alliteration. So the, the consonants at the beginning might be the same, or the vowel sounds, what's called assonance, might be the same. And paranomasia, which is a word almost nobody knows, that is use of similar sounding words. And there's one uh, very fun example, an important example of paranomasia that we'll discuss today in these chapters. And then uh, we discussed a few lessons ago, we, we discussed an acrostic poem, which is that the first letter of each line, when, when those letters are separated out and put together, they actually form a message of their own. This, this is a poetic form that exists in English as well. So an acrostic poem, if you read the first letter of each line of poetry vertically down the page, then it might spell something. And that's very common in Hebrew poetry as well. Um, the example that comes to mind right now is Psalm 119, where you see the, uh, the Hebrew alphabet in order, but not always is the alphabet in order. It might be that it forms a word. The, these first letters of the lines form a word. And finally, this, re this idea of repetition, it's not just in um, what's called synonymous parallelism. So you have parallelism where the same idea is repeated twice, but it can also be antithetic parallelism where you know, the and, and the example that we're going to go in today is one of these. But um, Jesus, for example, said about the temple, and this is, this is one of the parts of the lesson today. Jesus said, it is written that my house will be a place of, a house of prayer, or the temple will be a, a place of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. So this is parallelism. He's talking about the temple in both cases. And yet one is antithetical of the other. So there are antonyms. And it might be, that, so parallelism could take a number of different forms. One of them, and I won't go into all of those, but one of them is uh, introverted or inverted parallelism, which is also known as chiasmus, which we've discussed. So that's all we'll say about Hebrew poetry. However, uh, almost all of what we're going to study today is actually poetic. And so I thought I'd mention it because it's worth looking at the, it, it's worth reading this or looking at it, at least in English, in a few different translations, and one in which you can see where it lapses into poetry and where it goes back into prose. It's kind of fun to realize, oh, the, you know, Isaiah probably was out there teaching on the street corners or, um, well, in fact, Isaiah was a little different from most of the Hebrew prophets in that he was highly involved in government. So... He perhaps had a position in government. He might have been a scribe, but he served or counseled four different kings of Israel or of Judah, sorry, and therefore was called on to sometimes provide an oracle or sometimes God sent him to the king and sometimes the king sent Isaiah to inquire of God. And he was this liaison between the heavenly and the earthly, but very, very involved in politics and government. And, uh, a, a stark counterexample to the idea that we have today that prophets should stay out of public affairs. Isaiah was very much um, a disproof of that idea. So a powerful, that's Isaiah the man. Now, let's understand uh, a little bit about our Old Testament history. We, we studied the book of Kings all the way up until the end of the book of Chronicles, right? We, we went up and to the point where Isaiah is about ready to be conquered, or I'm sorry, Isaiah, Judah, the nation of Judah is about ready to be conquered by the Babylonians. So the 
The kings David and Solomon, they establish the nation of Israel. It divides in two. They go along for a while, but the northern kingdom is wicked, and eventually it's conquered by the Assyrians. And then a hundred and some odd years later, the southern kingdom of Judah is ripening in iniquity as well. Well, the time frame of Isaiah is we're going to back up about a hundred years, and Isaiah is a contemporary of Hosea, of Amos, of Micah. And Micah we kind of skipped in the podcast because he came on the same lesson as Jonah, and they weren't really thematically connected, so I kind of had to choose. But if they'd, I wish they'd connected Amos and Micah because um, they were contemporaries. So think of think of Isaiah as this uh, as living in the southern kingdom around the time when the northern kingdom is either preparing to be conquered or just been conquered by the Assyrians. And in fact, um, we'll see an episode repeated in the book of Isaiah later on that we've already read about in the book of Kings and Chronicles. So that's it's repeated. This event is repeated three times, and it's when the uh, it's when the Assyrian generals or the the major domo, the the second in command to the to the emperor arrives. The Assyrian emperor arrives at the walls of Jerusalem and threatens it, and Isaiah makes his famous prophecy, they won't shoot one arrow against us, and then it comes true. So uh, the Lord miraculously saves the city of Jerusalem and the nation of Judah, even though most of Judah has been conquered at this point by the Assyrians, they're able to rebuild it because the Assyrians don't succeed in conquering the entire kingdom of Judah. So that's the historical context in which Isaiah falls. He's about if you think about a time frame that that has some modern relevance, Isaiah lived about as long before Lehi as Joseph Smith did before Thomas Monson. So uh, Lehi would have heard of Isaiah as a wonderful prophet from not too long ago by their point by their perspective because they had a much longer history than we do in the modern church. Uh, but it would have been within memory of a couple of generations. For example, my father often tells the story. He's he's getting on in years, and so he loves to repeat this story more often than than a lot of people might like. But my father often tells the story of his his great grandfather. So my my dad's eighty, almost eighty two now, and he when he was eight or nine years old, he asked his great grandfather if he'd ever met Brigham Young. And he was Brigham Young's nephew. And so he says, of course I did. We, and he points to the to downtown Salt Lake. They're sitting on the porch and looking over the valley at that point. And uh, he points to where Brigham Young used to live. And he said, I went to his home there every week for dinner. And so my dad loves to tell the story and how he uh, has spoken to somebody who was born in 1859. So within just a couple of generations from me is somebody who has spoken to the prophet of Joseph Smith or spoken to somebody who's spoken to him etc. So that's the that's the time frame that Nephi was dealing with. He would have he would have viewed Isaiah in much the same way as we would view Joseph Smith today. And let's uh, let's open up now the, the book of Isaiah and talk about it a little bit. So what what are the th- what are the six antecedents of Isaiah that I've referred to? Well, Isaiah so in addition to all the other obstacles to us understanding Isaiah is this idea of prophetic layering, meaning each passage might have more than one meaning. And as a means of 
decoding that, I came up with the idea of the six antecedents. Now, sometimes an antecedent is the word that precedes a pronoun. I'm going to the store, or um, I guess that's a bad example. Uh, Joe is going to the store. He wants to buy some milk. So he is the pronoun, and Joe is the antecedent. Well, in Isaiah, sometimes you have these pronouns, and you don't know what the antecedent is. For example, Isaiah will all of a sudden use the word I, and it's clear he's talking about from in God's voice, but he didn't say, um, thus saith the Lord. Sometimes he does, sometimes he doesn't. If he does say, thus saith the Lord, we don't have quote marks, and so we don't know when that quotation ends. And so then sometimes he says, I, and he clearly means, I, Isaiah, instead of I, Jehovah. So this is the problem with the antecedents. And one of the ways around it is, we assume that any number of antecedents could apply at any point. And this makes Isaiah take a little more work, right? Each verse we're reading, whenever anything's unclear of what's going on, then we ask ourselves a question, which of these six antecedents that we've identified as possibilities might apply in this passage? So the first one is Isaiah himself, and then, and by the by the antecedents, I mean any antecedent that might take the place of a pronoun. So I, he, you, all of these pronouns are used in Isaiah, and we have a set of antecedents that could be filled in. So the first is the surface set, which is Isaiah himself and the people of his day. So I go, Isaiah says, I go talk to the king, um, or I appear before the Lord, and he says to me, right, all of these things are the first antecedent, which is the surface level of the story. Isaiah is telling us something that happened to him directly. However, quite often, what happens to Isaiah or the visions that he's given have a reflection in the history of Israel. So we can almost, if we were to draw, for example, a little diagram or a timeline of the events that Isaiah describes, and then we were to overlay over that timeline a depiction of the history of Israel, another timeline, which obviously way more condensed, sometimes those timelines have important places where they intersect. And so that's another set of antecedents that we can substitute in one of Isaiah's stories is what what happened to the children of Israel. Um, and, and just to refresh your memory, we're talking about everything from the time when Abraham is given his covenant. This is when Jews see themselves as having their origins as a people. Abraham is given the covenant. You are going to be, in, in your seed is all of, are all of the kingdoms of the earth, all the people of the earth going to be blessed. So you're going to have this, these lands given to you, you're going to have the priesthood, and then you're going to be a blessing to all the nations. And then Joseph is sold into Egypt, and Moses rescues the children of Israel from slavery. They have the exodus. They travel through the wilderness. They come into the promised land. And then the prophets are telling them that, and then they have these kings. And then David receives this revelation that there's going to be a messianic king, which is going to bring back the glory days of Solomon and then some. But first, then all the prophets are telling them you're going to be exiled and scattered, and then you're going to be gathered. And when when this messianic king comes along, you're going to have uh, this this golden age where all creation will be made new. So this is the that's the context for the second antecedent, which is the the spiritual history, the long term history, including the future history of the people of Israel. And sometimes we can overlay that on the events Isaiah describes. And the so that's the second antecedent. The third antecedent 
is Isaiah, you'll see this a lot in the chapter headings. Isaiah speaks messianically. So a lot of times Isaiah is talking about Jesus Christ. Sometimes he's talking about Jesus Christ's mortal ministry. In fact, most often that's what that means. But sometimes he's talking about Jesus Christ in his second coming or in his pre-mortal ministry in the, in the war in heaven, etc. So anytime that Isaiah is talking about prophecies about Christ or... Um, Jesus Christ's life, or what we know about Christ, Jesus Christ in his role as the Messiah, that's the third antecedent, and we can substitute that set of antecedents. So people mistreating Israel might, if we substitute that in, it might be the people who are mistreating Christ, and vice versa. And this is how we can find out what different layers Isaiah might have put on some of his prophecies. So the first, we have three layers now. The first is the surface layer. Second, the people of Israel. Third, we have uh, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Fourth, we have our our progress as spirits in the plan of salvation. So from the time we were pre-mortal spirits to the, to the war in heaven, accepting the plan of God, born into this earth, we receive the ordinances of the gospel, we die, um, we go to the spirit world, we're resurrected, and then we live in a we live as resurrected beings. That that's the plan of salvation, and and if again that's another layer we could overlay sometimes onto the events Isaiah describes and gain wisdom from doing that. The fifth antecedent is the temple. Now Isaiah would have meant this as the tabernacle or the or, or Solomon's temple which had a very specific structure, which you can find diagrams of this online, but basically it's you go from the outer court where there's, and we discussed uh, this in a, in a recent special episode, which I'll be releasing next week, but um, it's the, you, from the outer court through the holy place to the holy of holies, you're basically, the temple is reversing the fall. And that's the whole point of the plan of salvation is to we go through the fall, and then the atonement brings us back into God's presence. That's what the temple does, and that's what it was intended to represent. And so often you can overlay um, a diagram of the ancient tabernacle over this, and the, there are tons of parallels between that and the modern temple as well. So that's the fifth antecedent. The sixth antecedent of Isaiah is what I like to call our daily walk, and that means each of us has choices to make every day. We have a spiritual, we, we wake up in the morning we, and hopefully we say a prayer to God and we say, God, be with me today. Help me make good choices. Help me to see thy hand in the world around me. Help me to know what it is that you want me to learn from this day. So it's different from our, our eternal progression. It means that, you know, today I might have difficulties come up and then I might feel the power of God, or I might feel God or some lesson softening my heart, or suffering comes along and I have to humble myself. And these things have parallels in the... This is what Nephi meant when he said, I liken the scriptures unto us. It meant we've got to take what happened to the ancient children of Israel, and we've got to look at it as a human lesson that we can apply today. It's not just for us to apply over the course of our spiritual existence that spans eons of time. It's, I've got to be able to, to get a spiritual lesson that I can use in the next 24 hours or in the next week. Our, our lives generally take a, a pattern that is repeated every week. We go to church, hopefully, again, and we take the sacrament, we renew our covenants, and then we get back into the work week, 
And if you look at your life over the course of years, really the, the most repetitive thing in it are the weeks of your life. That's the pattern that repeats itself over and over again. So the daily walk or the weekly walk, our, our struggle every day to live the commandments of God, that's another layer that we can that we can put on top of any of the events that happen in Isaiah. Now, sometimes one or only one of these antecedents will apply in addition to the surface, um, the, surf, the set of surface antecedents that apply. But sometimes all of them apply. Very rarely do all six apply at the same time, but sometimes one or more can be added on top of that. So that's a quick introduction to what, what I call the six antecedents of Isaiah. So let's jump right in to this lesson and talk about Isaiah chapter 6. Now, before we get into the events of this chapter, I want to talk about the idea of holiness. You may remember when when I when Moses was called up, Moses was asked to call what the original 70, Christ called 70 um the 70 as it's called in the New Testament, but that idea didn't originate with Christ. It uh it originated in the time of Moses. He had he needed someone to delegate to. And so God said, bring 70 men up into the mountain and and I will uh, give them, I'll set them apart, basically. And at the same time, the commandment was given and see that no one else comes anywhere close to this mountain. And while the, while the holy presence is on this mountain, no one can come within and there was a very clear boundary set. You know, no one come, no one can come beyond this point. And if they do, they will die. That was what it was said. And so the idea that was communicated was God, God's presence, the sh- what we've what we've called the Shekinah, which is the same cloudy, smoky presence that inhabited the temple at the time of the dedication by Solomon. Right, this this physical presence of God. That is it is. So it's a good thing, but it's also can be dangerous. And so that was one indication of it. Uh, An earlier indication was when Moses saw the burning bush and he's, he's approaching this burning bush and God says, take your shoes off your feet. And he also says, don't come any closer. You're in the holy presence right now. And so God is looking at this burning bush and he sees the burning of it. Well, this Isaiah chapter six is another example of this kind of holiness, which is the presence of God, the Shekinah, Isaiah is caught up into the temple itself. And he has this vision, right? He has this dream. And the in order to separate people, in order to help people avoid showing up where they shouldn't show up, the book of Leviticus defines, in, in chapters 11 through 17, defines the the ways in which somebody might become ritually impure. And this didn't mean, there's a lot of misunderstanding nowadays about what that meant. This didn't mean that they had sinned necessarily, but it was a symbol. So ritual impurity didn't mean that uh, you'd, you had to repent, but it did mean that you had to purify yourself. Um, and when we talk about the parable of the Good Samaritan next year, um, well, you can you can see that the the priest and the Levite who passed this Samaritan in Christ's parable, they may have been doing so because they didn't want to become ritually impure. It took seven days to purify yourself, and during which time they wouldn't be allowed to perform their duties in the temple. 
So if you were, if you came near a dead body, if you came near certain bodily fluids, blood, for example, a symbol of death, uh, if you touched mold, if you, if you took part in any number of activities that brought you in contact with something that, if you touched a leper, any of these things would make you ritually impure. And at the end of that time, you would, or as soon as you realize you were ritually impure, you would have to wait seven days. And at the end of that time, you would take a bath, you would show yourself to the priest, you would explain everything that had happened, and then you would be declared ritually pure again. Only then could you, if you were a priest or a Levite, only then could you attend to temple duties. Now, the problem wasn't that it was sinful to touch a dead body. Obviously, people had to do that, and nothing wrong with it, nothing sinful about it. The problem came if you touched that dead body, you were ritually impure, and then you try to go into the presence of God, present yourself in front of the Shekinah. Only then were you in actual danger. So that's a little bit of context for what happens here, because Isaiah finds himself, he's in a, whether it's a vision or a dream, or whether he's physically caught up, we don't know. It's probably in some vision, but he believes himself to be physically present, and he sees God in the temple, and he sees God's holiness. And in fact, there are seraphim, which he describes as six-winged creatures, uh, but which are angels. They're hovering around God and they're saying, holy, holy, holy is, is the Lord God Jehovah. Well, um, as we discussed, holy, holy, holy is a way of saying God is the holiest. And to repeat it three times is even more holy than two times, right? So the they're trying to express the idea of just how holy God is. And not only are you in the presence of this, this pillar of cloud that has in, inhabited the temple, you are in the actual physical presence of God himself because he sees God sitting on a throne. Uh, and, and Jews have a, they, they, I shouldn't say they have a problem with this. They regard this as symbolic because um, few religions believe that God is actually anthropomorphic. He's um, he's a formless cloud or, or a formless being that inhabits the entire universe and cannot be confined to one place. So they see this as a symbolic uh, vision on the behalf of Isaiah, but he sees um, he sees God sitting on a throne with angels hovering all around saying, holy, holy, holy. And the first reaction of Isaiah is one of terror. And he says, oh, behold, woe is me. Woe is me. Behold, I'm a man of unclean lips. And not only that, but I live among a people of unclean lips. So we don't know necessarily that Isaiah was ritually impure, but he's feeling his impurity. And he's feeling like, I am, I, I have seen the face of God. You know, I'm here I am, and I'm, and I'm impure. So he is participating in this perception of God's holiness as something to, that's something that's dangerous and that has to be extensively prepared for, and he recognizes I'm not prepared, and there may be no preparation for this level of exposure to God's glory. There he is beholding God in all of his glory. So here's, this is what's happening in Isaiah chapter 6. The reason why I skipped to Isaiah chapter 6, by the way, I'll make clear in a bit. Uh, so then Isaiah, um, then what happens is one of these seraphim, one of these angels, now inside the temple, was an altar that had a continuous fire kindled in it. And the, the uh, priests and Levites would keep burning on this altar um, incense that would create smoke that symbolized the presence of God. 
And so this was meant to always be burning, as was the candlestick that also was in the holy place of the temple. And so there was there was a constant fire going on in this altar. And one of the angels takes a pair of tongs and picks up a coal and brings it over to Isaiah and touches his lips with this burning hot coal. So, so far, this, this vision is extremely terrifying for Isaiah. He sees God, and this, this has to be, first of all, and then he, he sees these seraphim with six wings. They're immensely powerful beings. And um, there are some latter-day interpretations of what their wings mean and what they might have appeared like, but none of that's important. The point is, he sees these beings, and it's obvious that they are divine beings, and they are extremely powerful, and the whole and Isaiah has been transported outside of himself. The whole thing is extraordinary in the extreme. Uh, you might, in Hebrew terms, you might say it's extraordinary, extraordinary, extraordinary. Isaiah is dumbfounded and scared to death, and that doesn't end when this this seraphim brings a, a hot coal over and puts it on his mouth, right? But then God says to Isaiah. You can, you can relax now. You can have peace. This coal, you've been burned. This, the impurity has now been burned out of you. So if you just read this on the surface level, which we've, we've, we've done, you might think, interesting, God has, God has purified Isaiah. What's the problem? And you don't recognize, you don't put yourself in Isaiah's point and recognize what emotions must be going through him. And also you don't understand the idea of holiness. Then you might you might not get that this was a new concept that uh, up until this point, let me, let me put it another way, up until this point, Isaiah had seen only impurity as something that could be communicated from one object to another. If you were a person and you touched something impure, you became impure. And now he's learning the concept that purity is also something that can be communicated by God or one of God's representatives. And so this this burning coal is something sent by God to purify Isaiah. And now instead of having to go through the ritual purification process and taking a bath and waiting the time and presenting himself before a priest, he's instantly pure. And not only is he instantly pure, but he's pure beyond anything which he's ever known. And immediately God God has a mission to perform and immediately Isaiah feels like he's worthy. He's one of the now he's one of the council of God. He's he doesn't he no longer has to wonder, do I belong here? Am I one with these people? I'm I am an equal in this company, in this gathering. So God says, I have a mission to perform. Who can help? And Isaiah immediately pipes up and says, Here am I, send me. So that's that's what's happening in this sixth chapter of Isaiah is that Isaiah has learned a little bit about um, the process of purification, about the holiness of God, and how it's possible not only to receive impurity, but also to receive purity. He's been sanctified by the, the burning of this coal that has been found in the temple. Now, if we were to try, we could, we could uh, discover some other layers to this story. We've, we've discussed the first layer of the story. But now we can start to take these antecedents of Isaiah and maybe uh, overlay them over the top. Now, one um, obvious parallel that I see 
is the third antecedent, which is Jesus Christ. Now, Isaiah was made pure rather than having to ritually purify himself. What do we see in the life of Christ that would reflect that same thing? Well, Christ went among lepers. Uh, He had a woman with an issue of blood touch him on the hem of his garment to be healed. He touched dead bodies, and he brought um, Lazarus, for example, back from the dead. Christ was never made impure by any of these contacts. In fact, he extended his purity to those who were impure. Not only that, but he also told his disciples, his apostles, the 12, when he sent them out on their first mission, he said, he gave, ex, uh, he gave special attention, you can cleanse lepers. In other words, he, he was telling them, we don't, we don't quite realize, he was telling them, you don't have to worry about ritual impurity. In this particular case, your purity, your sanctification is stronger than that ritual impurity. You will overcome it by the authority that I'm giving you right now. You are stronger than that, and, and you can communicate this purity. Not only do you not have to worry about having this impurity communicated to you, you can communicate your purity to the leper himself and, and cleanse him or her. So Christ was Christ is an obvious overlay on top of this coal that was brought out of the altar in the temple. And so what does that mean about everything else that's going on? We can assign... Knowing that, we can assign value to values to who was who is Isaiah in that story. If if Christ is the coal, who is Isaiah? Who was uh, who were the seraphim? Who is God sitting above the temple? Um, that's th- those are all interesting lines of inquiry that we could engage in. Um, what does it mean about our eternal salvation? For example, where, where does this fit in the plan of salvation? Where does it fit in the history of the nation of Israel? Well. It fits right in the middle. The history of the nation of Israel includes when the Messiah appears to them and they don't recognize him. And so here's this, um, here's this purifying act that gets them ready. And what, is, what does God say to Isaiah as soon as he's purified? He says, go out among these people. And he, he gives him some interesting commandments, which we'll go over in a bit. But he says, make their heart fat. Make, the, make it so they don't recognize their eyes are not open so they can see, or their ears so they can hear. They don't recognize their sinfulness because they're going to be destroyed. Um, so we'll talk about what might be another interpretation of that. But in any case, that's what happened when Christ came to the Jews, right? That uh, as soon as Christ appeared with, the, with this burning purity, then the authorities at the time did not listen to him. In fact, when they had a chance, when the Jewish people had a chance to choose Christ or a terrorist to free, they chose Barabbas. So this is an example of how their um, their hearts were made fat. Can you start to see how we can overlay different layers on each of the each of the stories that is related by Isaiah and get more from it? And whether th- this might have been intentional on Isaiah's part, all of it might have been, and some of it might not have been. That doesn't mean we can't profit from it. And I I do believe most of it was. And uh, finally, what does this mean in our own, what does this mean about the temple? What does this mean about our own daily walk? You can find, if you ask yourself these questions about this this episode, you can find parallels in all six of um, of the antecedent layers that I've given you. But if we skip straight to the sixth, which is what does it mean for me personally? 
Now, one thing I didn't say about the sixth antecedent is that's going to be different for every person. We might all come up with the same interpretation. How does Christ fit into this? But each of us is going to have a different interpretation. What does it mean for me in my life? And they're all correct. If it if it resonates for you, that's what you should be paying attention to. Every time you close your scriptures, you should be able to, to take what you've read and find some way of putting yourself, the situation in your life, overlaying it on top of the story you just read. Something about your life will fit the situation from the scriptures. Well, to me, one of the ways to fit ourselves into this episode is why to ask ourselves the question, why was Isaiah forgiven? Why was he purified rather than being destroyed? There are plenty of examples in the Old Testament of Jews that got too close to the, the holy temple, to something that's holy, or, or kadosh, as, as the word is. This is what these, these seraphim are saying, kadosh, 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 God is so holy. And if you get too close to it, you're destroyed, you're burned up, you're, you're struck down, you're immediately dead. Or, you know, or something almost as bad, you're struck blind, whatever it might be. Why is Isaiah purified instead? Uh, one of the answers that I have is he recognizes his attitude as he goes in was not, number one, I'm going to choose to go there. He was brought there. And number two, he says, woe is me. You know, I've seen God and I'm totally impure. And God can work with that. So we'll we'll come back to that idea. But that to me is 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 my own personal sixth antecedent of what's going on in this story. Now, why did we start with chapter six? First of all, um, Isaiah was the prophet under four different kings of Israel. This uh, Uzziah was the first one, and it says in the the beginning of chapter six, "This is the vision I had in the year that King Uzziah died." So it's early on in Isaiah's ministry, and it's also his prophetic calling. It's God telling him. This is what you're going to be doing among the children of Israel. Now, did he write the earlier chapters first or not? We don't know. But one thing that it says early on in chapter 1 is Isaiah was a prophet during these during the reign of these four kings of Judah. And in other words, it's kind of like the first section of the Doctrine and Covenants. It was written, in my opinion, it was written to be the first part of it, but it was written after everything else was done, or or a lot of the rest of it was written. Um, that is the case with the first section of the Doctrine and Covenants. It was written or revealed as a preface after there was already uh, a large part of the rest of the book in existence. And this, we have evidence for this also in the fact that in the in the book of Second Nephi, there's an extended twelve or eleven chapter um, quotation of Isaiah. And Nephi skips over this first chapter, so it may not have been included as the preface at that in, in Nephi's version, or um, for some other reason, it just wasn't seen as part of that same narrative that Nephi thought important to include. So we might think, oh, he just chose to begin with chapter two, but it also might be the case that he chose to begin with what was to him chapter one, and... Um, Anyway, this, this chapter one we're going to get to last because it ties together a lot of the things we'll talk about. So let's talk about chapter two. This chapter two starts out with, well, one and two together. They, uh, Isaiah brings these competing uh, cities 
into our consideration. One is the current modern day, what is to him modern day Jerusalem, which is the sinful place that God has determined will be destroyed. And then in chapter two, he talks about this this future day, and he says, in the last days or in the latter days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be exalted above the hills. Well, when Jews read that, when we read this today, we're thinking the Salt Lake Temple, right? We're thinking the mountains, the Wasatch Mountains surrounding the Salt Lake Temple, because we've been taught this so many times. The Jews were not thinking this. They were thinking the temple in Jerusalem. So they were thinking the mountain of the Lord's house, the temple in Jerusalem will be exalted above all the hills, meaning it's going to be the holiest place on earth, and other nations are going to respect that holiness. And they're going to come to hear what comes out of there. The, the, and they didn't see it as being two different places, the word of the Lord from Zion, and you know God's will will come forth from Jerusalem. Now, we kind of see this as having two different fulfillments, but th- for them it was just parallelism. It was just saying, and that's and that's one way that we that's one of our overlays here, right? It's Isaiah talking about the present day, and then he's also talking about the latter days. Um, so, if you read this verse, the and he says the word of the Lord will go forth. I, I don't have it in front of me, but the 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 word of the Lord will go forth from Jerusalem, and the will of God from Zion. Right. So it, there's a there's a parallelism there that's happening. But what a, an ancient Jew would an ancient Hebrew would have understood was that he's talking about the temple in Jerusalem. This temple is going to be elevated above everything else. So they're thinking that when they when they read this, they're thinking, God is going to take what I know as Jerusalem and exalt it. And we may have to go through some changes. We might have some difficulties in front of us. But in the last days, this very place where I'm standing now is going to be the center of the earth. So there, there are two cities that are being contrasted in chapters 1 and 2. Old Jerusalem, New Jerusalem. And through the rest of the book of Isaiah, or through the rest of the first half at least, Isaiah is fleshing out this idea. He'll add more details to Old Jerusalem, the sinful Jerusalem, the Jerusalem as he knows it now. He'll add descriptions to what their sins are, what the penalties for those sins might be. And then he'll add descriptions to how blessed it will be one day when Jerusalem is gathered together again. And then he talks about, sort, sort of towards the middle of the book, Isaiah starts talking about the exile that the, the Israelites have waiting for them. Now, this is not new to Isaiah. They would have heard this before. They know about the Assyrians. They also know about the Babylonians. Babylon is not really that important of an empire yet. But, uh, but um, Isaiah begins to prophesy that it will be. And so they know that at some point they're going to be carried away captive. Now, for Jews, this is sort of an ambiguous idea, their exile and then their return. So for them... The, the time of this Davidic king, this messianic king, is right around the corner. They're going to be, maybe, they might have to spend a little time in exile. And they did have to spend a little time in exile. And then they'll come right back, and then it'll be the end days, where the, where the Messiah comes and they live in peace and in glory forever. But the Jews were actually scattered, conquered several times in the history that we have already, which is... Um, before the Assyrians, they were already they'd already been beaten up by a number of empires, the the Egyptians and the Assyrians and and um, a few other empires in the area had had come through at different times, and 
stolen things from the temple. I mean, the Jews weren't always the most powerful, even in their own kingdom, but they were left alone kind of because they were right in the middle of several more powerful kingdoms. But then when Israel, the northern kingdom, is conquered by the Assyrians, then, and, and the Assyrians arrive at the very gates of Jerusalem, then, then that's one time in which uh, Israel is conquered. Judah is almost conquered. The Babylonians then carry them, actually carry them away and destroy the temple. Then the Persians conquer the Babylonians and the Jews are allowed to come back. And so we think because the, the Bible ends at that point after they come back, they repent, they rebuild the temple, we think, oh, this is, that was their scattering and then part of their gathering. But the Jews are actually conquered again. Alexander the Great rolls through at, between the two testaments. And then the Maccabees gain their independence, and Israel once again is an autonomous state, and they rebuild the temple, they rededicate it. This is where Hanukkah comes from. Then the Romans come through, and during the, during the time of the New Testament, they're conquered again. Then the Jews try to get their autonomy again, and they're conquered again and scattered. And this time the scattering means the temple is reduced absolutely to rubble. Well, now today, the... Um, or in the last century, the British controlled this area and the Jews were given a, in the middle of the 20th century, the Jews were given their own autonomous state again. And so for us, we think, because we've been assured as Latter-day Saints, we think, okay, this is the last time that this will happen. But each time that, if you were a Jew, each time you're in the middle of this happening, you don't know whether it's the last time. Uh, the prophecies of Isaiah are not exactly clear. So uh, the reason I say this is these prophecies might have any number of fulfillments. And the Jews might not, a Jew to, in today's world might not know exactly when this prophecy is going to come true. One day I'll gather you back to the new Jerusalem <clears throat> and I'll give you a, an eternal creation that will last forever. So that's what Isaiah is talking about here. And this is not totally new idea to the people that would have been hearing this. And so we could, we could read through that the prophecy is not really confined to uh, chapter 2, but it's, it's a prophecy that continues from chapter 2 to chapter 4. And basically it's that um, Jerusalem is going to be made new and the Jews are going to be a blessed people. Now it's important for us as Latter-day Saints to realize when Isaiah is talking about the people of Israel, he is including us in this. Whenever he's talking about the latter days, he's talking about those who are of the house of Israel. They don't have to be the Jews that he discusses. The, the, the house of Israel, the, the line of Jacob that he discusses does not have to be in a current state of, re, of rejecting the Messiah in order to fit this definition. So we kind of think the house of Israel is them and the Gentiles are us. In some ways, that's true. Like, our nation is a nation of Gentiles in, in Old Testament terms. But those people who are uniting themselves to the house of Ephraim, who are performing the work of the gathering of Israel, those people are part of the house of Israel. So a lot of these prophecies apply to you and to me. Um, so we read, the, we read through uh, chapter 2, and at the end... Or, well, through the middle, he says that the, these Jerusalem lights, he, he starts out in the, in the new Jerusalem, and then he goes back to the old Jerusalem. And he says, at some point, they're all, all going to run away and hide in the rocks 
and in the caves. And in other words, their, their city isn't going to be enough. The, the holiness of God is going to be so scary to them. God's going to arrive, and they, they're afraid of his presence. Again, it's a dangerous thing to get close to God without being holy, and they're all going to take their possessions and leave them behind, and they're going to run and hide in these rocks, and they're going to say, my gold is worthless. This idol I've been following, it's worthless, and cast it aside. This is what's going on in chapter 2. And in this, the, the idea continues, the vision continues, chapter 3, um, about what might happen to anyone who's still, who's still practicing iniquity in that day. And what kind of iniquity is it? It's the, mostly it's the oppression of the poor. And Isaiah continues to develop this idea of humility, the lack of humility being um, the cause of, the, of your impurity. So in other words, Isaiah was brought into God's presence, and because he recognizes his iniquity and his impurity, God is able to purify him. But if your whole life is centered around building yourself up, is centered around making yourself look good, then God can't work with you. So in chapter 3, it talks about how, in verse 16, talks about how people are paying attention to the way they dress, the way they look, they want to appear to be either wealthy or powerful. They want to show that they have God's glory on their side. And God says in verse 18, I'm going to strip all this stuff away. And, and to the point where you're going to, I'm going to give you burlap instead of fine silk. I'm going to, where you have hair, you're going to have baldness. And instead of perfume, you're going to have a stench. In other words, all these things you think are, are important, I'm going to have to take it away because it's preventing you from coming close to me. It's preventing you from allowing me to purify you. So in, in my opinion, that's what's going on in chapter 2 and 3. It kind of builds on the idea that Isaiah finds himself in the presence of God. He's purified because he's humble. And God says to him, make the heart of this people fat. Now, grammatically... You, you might remember we talked about the name of God, and um, a lot of people say that God, the name Yahweh or the name Jehovah means I am, and I've ex- advanced the theory that it's a different form, what's called a hiphil stem, H-I-P-H-I-L, which is causative. Instead of I am, I cause to be. Um, well, this, this make the heart of the people fat is the same thing, cause the heart of the people to be fat. There's another interpretation that can be given to something in this hiphal stem in, in Hebrew, which is declarative. In other words, declare that the heart of this people is fat, or declare that their eyes are too closed to see, or declare that their ears are closed that they might not hear. Um, I ha- that's one interpretation of what's going on. But the obvious thing is that God is not actually going to tell a prophet. If, if God says to a prophet, make the heart of this people fat, that seeing they might not see or comprehend, that hearing they might not, that listening they might not hear, he's being sarcastic. He's saying they're so far gone that they, no matter even, no matter what I do, they cannot hear me. Or he might be saying, declare that the heart of this people is fat so that no matter what I do, they're not going to hear me. Then Now we'll have more support for this idea in chapter one. But here we are now, we've moved to chapter four. This is the termination of this prophecy that Isaiah has over the last days. And he says, Seven, seven women will take hold 
of one man in that day and say, we will eat our own food, wear our own clothes, only let us be called by your name, take away our reproach. This is the uh, translation from IsaiahExplained.com. And a man, when a man married a woman in ancient Israel, this was, it was part of his pride that he would, he would be able to provide for her. And so Isaiah is saying the whole social order is turned on its head. Women will be willing just to call themselves married. They'll be willing to provide for themselves, give themselves food, shelter, and everything else if they can just call themselves married because um, the, the way that God will have overturned or uh, upended everything in, in society, the whole, the whole way that we see things will be absolutely reversed. Now it talks about how there are some there's some themes that I want you to pay attention to as you're reading this. One is the hands. Whenever you see something that that destroys, so God talks about my hand will be upon them, both for good and for evil. So his right hand is this recurring theme of a servant, and we'll get into the servant in later lessons. But the servant has a modern day fulfillment, which is the prophet the prophets of modern day, but also it's Jesus Christ, obviously the servant of God, but the servant is also the house of Israel, the faithful members of this of this kingdom of priests and holy nation that God wants to create. That's the right hand of God, this servant. And the left hand of God is has its embodiment in the kings of Babylonia and Persia, or I'm sorry, the kings of Assyria and Babylon. So they they're this destroying agent or what you might consider in the Book of Mormon terms to be the Nephites. They're, they're God's agent to stir up the Nephites in remembrance. So on the right hand, God has his servant who's going to purify the people and uh, goad them into righteousness. And on the left hand, you have this destroying agent, the, the wind. The, and that's in, in chapter 4, verse 4, the burning wind. Um, and here's a fire, and here's the heat of the day. So the, the power of God is a protection from this heat, from this downpour. All of these things are agents of God's left hand, and they're the, the power of God's right hand. So you, you might see those these um, there's a sword, and there's a fire, and there's anything that destroys is considered an embodiment of the king of Assyria or the king of Babylon. And anything that protects and serves is the servant of God, which has various uh, manifestations as well. So that's something to remember. Now let's get into chapter five. This is an extended allegory about a man with a vineyard. So the, the first antecedent is, this is a man with a vineyard, and the vineyard doesn't produce any fruit. And so what is, he, what is the husbandman, what is this tender of the vineyard going to do? Well, he's been putting a lot of wealth and effort and time and energy and money into it. And he's going to stop doing that. He's going to break down the wall, take all the stones and use them somewhere else. And he might even burn it down, but he's for sure not going to water it and tend it anymore. And then in verse seven, Isaiah says, uh, the vineyard of Jehovah of hosts is the house of Israel and the people of Judah, his cherished grove. He expected justice, but there was injustice. He expected righteousness, but there was an outcry. And an outcry means people who are being mistreated, crying for justice. Here's an example. This is, I promised you an, uh, an example of this Hebrew poetry, paranomasia. So he looked for justice. Now the word for justice is mishpat. And the word for bloodshed or injustice is mishpah. So he looked for justice, mish, he looked for mishpat, but found mishpah. 
He looked for righteousness, which is, which is tzedakah, but behold, an outcry, which is tzedakah. So you can see that uh, this is definitely poetry, right? We don't. There's no doubt that Isaiah de, uh, intended these words to sound alike. And it was a, a play on words. He's saying, oh, these two things, they seem to you to be so close together. He looked for mishpat, but found mishpah. He looked for tzedakah, but he found tzedakah. Sorry, I can't even say it. Tzeaka. He looked for tzedaka, but he found tzeaka. He looked for righteousness, but found an outcry. And to man, if you're not paying attention, if your eyes are closed, if your heart is fat, you might see these two things as being very similar. There's only one letter difference in each case. But there's all the difference in the world. They're opposites. So that's kind of the lesson that he's showing by his poetry is whenever you are deaf, you might see these things being the same. And in fact, he even says that, woe unto him who sees evil, who, who confuses evil for good or good for evil, or who makes the, t- the sweet to be bitter. So that lesson is only driven home by this po- poetic passage, which shows how close these things can appear to be, even though they're dramatically different. Very powerful passage. And, and to me, this is reminiscent, uh, again, of what Christ is talking about when he says, uh, when he talks about the temple. So he says, this is a, it was meant to be a house of prayer. This, in fact, uh, Christ says, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer. And that's a reference to Isaiah as well in chapter 56, verse 7. But the same contrast is here is apparent here in verse 5, verse 7 as well. Uh, it was meant to be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. And uh, so right here we have an example of what Christ was going through. Christ was going through the very same thing that Isaiah is pointing to. He's saying, God wanted it to be this, you've made it this. He, wa- he was looking for a righteousness, behold, an outcry. And so we can overlay the temple right over that. How are Jews treating the temple? And it, I, I wanted to add, I talked about all the ways in which uh, Judah was conquered over the centuries to point to the fact that each time Judah was conquered, the temple was also mistreated as well. So God would allow this right hand to protect his people as long as they were righteous and protect the temple. And then as soon as they left the worship of Jehovah, he would allow the left hand to come in and destroy them. And, when, and without fail, every time they came in, they'd loot the temple and sometimes they would destroy it or, or at least do a lot of damage to it. So God, at some point, if the, if the Jews aren't willing, if the people aren't willing to hold their temple as precious, God will remove his protection from it as well, no matter how much he valued it in the past. He can't always protect it if they won't even consider it as being something worthy of protection spiritually. So this is, a, this is a fun chapter, Isaiah chapter 5, because it starts out with this metaphor of the vineyard. And then God talks about how he's going to take, he even talks about vineyards, and he says, okay, so if you're going to be an unfruitful vineyard, I'll show you an unfruitful vineyard. You think that you're wealthy? Well, guess what? All you wealthy people, and, he, and then he names a few offenses, like one of them is taking plots of land and joining them together. And what that means is somebody who is so powerful that they can increase their land and take away the land of the poor. And eventually they just have one big plot of ground and they force people to move, right? It's, it's almost like the sins of a real estate developer. And 
Um, obviously, this person doing this is is injuring the poor in some way, in some degree of unrighteousness, and is probably having the help of someone in government, some corrupt official, to help him do this. So we don't know exactly what was going on. But um, the poor are being pushed out of their land. They're being deprived of all kinds of justice. And even uh, it even says if, if you vindicate someone because of a bribe and then fail to vindicate or withhold vindication from from someone who's righteous, then these are the these are the sins that you're doing. So you're you're ignoring the widow, the orphan, the the poor, but you're favoring the rich because they can pay you. So this kind of corruption and wickedness is also being decried in addition to idolatry. And so if you're wealthy enough that you're doing this, I'm going to show you exactly what this huge vineyard you've created is going to be worth. You're going to get nothing from it. You're going to put more seed into it than you're going to get in uh, crops at the end. And that's what uh, chapter 5 verse 10 means. A 10 acre vineyard shall yield but one bath or a, a, a uh, unit of measurement, a homer of seed, but an ephah. So that's one-tenth of what you put into it, you're going to get back out. So he talks about the different forms of wickedness. And then at the end, he says, the anger of Jehovah is kindled against his people. Now we're in uh, Isaiah chapter 5, verse 25. He draws back his hand against them and strikes them. The mountains quake and their corpses lie like litter about the streets. Yet for all this, his anger is not abated. His hand is, his hand is upraised still. Um, and again, this is not the King James translation I'm quoting from. A lot of times we misinterpret um, his hand is outstretched still to mean that God is never going to give up on us. He's stretching his hand out in mercy. That is true. It's a true sentiment. But that is not what these passages mean where he says his hand is outstretched still. It means even though he's destroyed them, that he still hasn't forgiven them because they have not yet recognized their sin. He's given them all kinds of afflictions in order to bring to their consciousness their wickedness, and they're not getting it. And so he can't stop with the left hand, right? This is, again, God's left hand is outstretched, not his right hand. His destroying agents, whatever they might be, they might be the wicked kingdoms or the elements of chaos in the earth. He has to keep sending those. And then comes this uh, interesting metaphor and we in the LDS church have interpreted this last part of verse five, or chapter 5 to be um, a, pro- a prophecy about the latter day Zion it says God he raises an ensign to the distant nations and they all come gathering right and there are a lot of imagery here that appears to have a, a latter day fulfillment like for example their 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 hoof, their horses hooves will be hard like flint in their um, their chariot wheels are like a whirlwind. So this, this seems to be the images of modern-day machinery, right? None of their arrows, their arrows are always sharp, meaning they're, you know, they might, that might be the way that he sees guns or the, the fact that his, their chariot wheels are like a whirlwind might be the way he sees a train or a, or a tank. Um, it's one possibility. It's also possible that Isaiah is talking about... Um, these last 26 through 30, these last verses of the of chapter 5, he's talking about God summoning Israel's enemies to come attack Israel. He's saying, if you, if you don't repent, I'm going to raise an ensign, a battle standard, and all your enemies are going to see it from nations far and wide, and they're going to realize that there is some easy prey here, and I'm going to abandon you, and they're going to come running. And they are going to be so mighty that it will be like their arrows never 
never are dulled and they're they never get tired and they none of their machinery will fail and they're going to come swiftly right so and they're going to be like lions where if a lion grabs a deer and runs away with it there's nobody that can stop that lion from polishing off that deer you before you get to the lion he's going to have eaten that entire carcass and that's what he's saying there's they're going to roar like lions and they're, they're going to be swift to the prey and none can deliver so that's another interpretation of these verses where it talks about the ensign is raised to all the nations. In other words, if Israel doesn't repent, then they're going to be the target. God is going to put a target on their back. And his hand is outstretched still is going to mean only repentance, only justice, not any of the other things that they think are, should appease God, but only actual change of their heart is going to change change God's mind about his punishments to them and bring about this new Jerusalem rather than having their old Jerusalem patterns continued. Well, that brings us to chapter one. So we talked about this fire that that uh, purified Isaiah and the fire, it, we see this fire um, in chapter five, again, in verse 24, this fire consumes Israel, right? The, the fire is something that God summons as part of his punishments. Um, my translation reads, a blazing fire consumed, as a blazing fire consumes stubble and as dry weeds wane before the flame, so shall their roots decay away and their blossoms fly up like dust. So it, this is the fire that destroys and not the fire that purifies. So what makes the difference? Um, it's really interesting here in chapter one, we have a similar thing. Right? But this time it's a fire that purifies again. So let's look at chapter 1, verse 25. You'll remember these, these verses that we're, we're now talking about. God is saying, um, your sins are scarlet. They can be white as snow. In other words, he's talking about you can be forgiven. Israel, you're wicked right now, but you don't have to be that way. And in verse 25, he talks about what will happen. The way, uh, the way it is in the King James Version, it's described as a refiner's fire. But... Um, what I have here is, I will restore my hand over you. And this is the right hand, right? This is the hand that is the servant of God. This is either Jesus or it is the, the prophets. It's one of God's healing agencies. It's the holiness of God. I will restore my hand over you and smelt away your dross as in a crucible and remove all your alloy. Now, in order to do that to a metal, a crucible is um, a vessel that you can put into fervent heat. The metal itself has to be utterly melted. It loses all of its former shape and structure. It has to be totally remade and, and, and turned from a solid into a liquid. Now, this is a burning process. It's an incredible heat of a, of a mighty fire, right? So um, that's what a refiner's fire is. It changes everything about the metal. And so God is, once again, he's talking about the fire that purifies rather than the fire that destroys. And and Isaiah must have been wondering which it was as this coal is coming close to his lips. Now, is this fire going to destroy me or, or what? I mean, I've never heard of a fire that purifies. And then when it purified him, we don't know whether it whether he felt physical pain in his vision, but I can imagine that it was painful. And um, so my question is, what is the difference? Um. The chapter one, going back to the beginning, it talks about the wickedness, the current wickedness of Israel. And then it gets to the point in verse 13, God says, bring, bring no more worthless offerings. They are as a loathsome incense to me. 
um, your monthly, in verse 14, your monthly and regular meetings my soul detests. They have become a burden on me. So he's describing all of the things that Israel is doing, their sacrifices, all of their religious observances, and he's saying, I hate these things you're doing. Why does God hate what Israel is doing? It's because underneath, they're doing, they're committing all these terrible sins. Wash yourselves clean, in verse 16. Wash yourselves clean. Remove your wicked deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Demand justice. Stand up for the oppressed. Plead the cause of the fatherless. Appeal on behalf of the widow. So he's saying, if you want to have justice, the only way to atone for injustice is with justice. It's not by going to church and bringing your animals to be sacrificed and and then committing the same sin again the next day. That doesn't work with me. In fact, it's hurting you because it's what keeps your heart fat. It's what causes me to tell Isaiah, make the heart of this people fat, make their eyes that they can't see. It's because you think you're being righteous. You've covered yourselves in all these beautiful clothing, these beautiful materials, and you've, and you've built up your lands and your, uh, your wealth to the point where no one can look at you and say anything is wrong. And yet, what is the most unattractive, let's say, uh, trait of somebody who's being, uh, who's being this way today. We'd, we'd look at somebody who's religious and we'd say, well, oh, they're self-righteous. We, we don't like that when we see it in our own co-religionists within the LDS church, but that's true of any religion. You would, you would see it in any Christian religion, in any, um, and I imagine in any religious community in the world, that the thing that people like least about other the others who believe how they believe is when they get self-righteous about it and they have their own sins and yet they think because I'm doing all of these observances that's just fine. So this is what God is decrying here but on a much deeper level they have all this terrible wickedness and he's saying because you're doing these religious observances you can't open your eyes to see your own sinfulness. Uh, President Uchtdorf at the time referenced this in 2015 when he talked about, uh, this is from the April 2015 conference, he talked about the gift of grace. And he's talking about the when Jesus goes into the home of Simon the Pharisee and there's this woman who appears and she bathes his feet with her tears and Simon is thinking, why is, if, if Jesus is a prophet, why is he letting the sinner touch him? Again, this idea of his, her impurity is going to infect him rather than his purity is going to purify, sanctify her, right? And God says, Simon, I've got something to tell you. There's a man who had two debtors, and he forgives one 50 pence, he forgives the other 500, which will love him more. Simon says, the one he forgives 500. And so then he points to this woman. He says, because she loved much, she's forgiven much. And because you loved little, you're not forgiven at all. And then he, and then President Nukdorf says, do we love much? Do we think that we're that do we when we go to church is it to replay the greatest hits of our own righteousness or do we recognize that we're totally lost because of sin and his point is we need the gift of grace and grace is what isaiah is talking about here when uh this this purifying fire putting us in the crucible and then turning us into some new form of metal and taking out all the alloy in other words any other metal that has been mixed with this metal he's going to heat us up to such an extent that he can drain it off. Now, metallurgists would tell you there are different ways of pulling metal out of an alloy. 
but one of the ways is by this this fervent heat and so to take it to take it back to its pure state requires um, such heat that the entire metal is reshaped now this seems like a painful process and Isaiah would probably tell you that it is but the alternative is to have your heart made fat the alternative is to comfort yourself with these outer observances the equivalent of what to an ancient Jew would have been going to synagogue. uh, And I take that back because they still at this point did not have synagogues. Going to the temple, bringing your animal and having it be sacrificed. And therefore your sin is atoned for. Showing up at all the festivals, having the largest Torah scroll, having your, uh, in in Jesus's day, tying on these phylacteries, these these, uh, little scriptural scrolls contained in boxes and they could put them and wear them on them on their person and then everyone would know they are observant virtue signaling in other words they have this uh they have this large tract of land and they have this they have wealth and they have this outer the garment this dress that looks very good and and underneath it's just rotten god is saying if you're rotten underneath that's the real problem that's what i want to get to so come now In verse 18, chapter 1 of Isaiah, Come now, let us put it to the test, or as King James has it, let us reason together. And if we'll reason together, if you'll bring your sins to me and you'll see that you're totally lost because of sin, what will happen? Though your your sins are as scarlet, they'll be white as snow. Though Though you're as crimson, you'll be like wool. So you can be purified, but you're not going to be purified because of this stuff you're doing. All of these things that are that are meant to make it seem like you're performing righteousness, all they're going to do is to make your heart fat. In other words, blind you. Blind you to your own wickedness. And therefore, they're harmful. But what you really need is this purifying fire. Because if what you want is to take part in the new Jerusalem, if what you want is when I, when I arrive, when my presence arrives, when the Shekinah comes before you, if you want to feel fear, then keep doing what you're doing. But if what you want is to be purified in that day, then what you need is to reason with me, to recognize like Isaiah did. And this is, for me, this is my sixth antecedent. When I read this passage, these first six chapters of Isaiah, this is how I apply it in my own life. I have to say, okay, am I totally lost because of sin or not? If I think I'm not, then that means on some level, I've made my heart fat. I've closed my eyes that I might not see. I've closed my ears that I might not hear. And I'm missing the whole point. I'm doing myself more harm than good because I am uh, believing that I don't need God's purifying power. And therefore, I'm denying it to myself. And when God arrives before me, when I'm in the presence of God, as Joseph Smith put it, uh, your confidence is either going to wax strong in the presence of God or it's not. If virtue is distilling, if virtue is garnishing your thoughts unceasingly, then your confidence is going to wax strong. You're going to see that you have need of the purifying power of God and not your own strength to do this. Well, this is my interpretation of the first six chapters of Isaiah. And this is a way that we can take any any chapter in Isaiah, we'll be doing it for the next five weeks, and apply it to ourselves, apply it to get a greater understanding of the history of Israel, understand more about the temple, understanding more about the plan of salvation, and most of all, understanding how important the role is of our Savior in all of these aspects. I pray that we can 
constantly be aware of that and that we can apply this lesson, which is I have to recognize how sinful I am before God, that I'm unholy before somebody like him. He's separate from everything. He's unique in all the universe. And I need to have his power to sanctify me. I need to humble myself and realize I'm totally lost because of sin and have the Savior plead on my behalf for the Father, not because of anything I've done, but because I'm willing to recognize my sin and ask for his help. And if I will do all of those things, then the, the benefits are guaranteed. Jesus Christ has already promised when we repent, when we confess and forsake our sins, they will be forgiven. And Isaiah promises the same thing. So let's take that lesson. Let's apply it in our daily lives. Make it part of our daily walk. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.